We're in the book of Psalms this spring. We're looking at various Psalms that give us the lyrics of knowing God. This is the 25th Psalm, Psalm 25. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for me shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgression. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness, for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he shall choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord." For he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. The priest in ancient Israel would elevate, raise up the offering. When the sacrifices were made, there were other sacrifices beside the blood sacrifices of the various animals. You remember there were the oblations or the drink offerings. And the priest would take the bowl or the vial or the uh, container, the vessel, and would raise and elevate the drink. It could be milk, it could be wine, it could be water. And he would elevate it to a height before the Lord, lifting it up to the Lord, and then would pour out the drink offering. In like manner, he would also do the fruit offering, the, the offering of the grain. He would take a big clump of grain, a sheaf of grain, and would raise it high up and wave it before the Lord. This was known as the wave offering or the fruit offering. 
These were offerings to the Lord with great symbol. And the language of raising up or lifting up is dedication. Uh, Paul even makes a great application for the drink offering with respect to his own life. St. Paul said that his life is being poured out like a drink offering to the Lord. What a beautiful way to express a lifetime of ministry and service to the Lord. You're being poured out as a drink offering. Oh, that the Lord would enable us to pour out our lives to the last drop for Him. David, in this particular psalm, and this is another psalm of David, we're sure, it was a psalm that probably was written later in David's life and may have been that cluster of psalms, and there are several of them that are written around the time when Dave, King David was undergoing a lot of problems in the kingdom, especially from his own son Absalom, who had raised a rebellious army against David, and at one point literally drove David out of Zion, out of the city of David, out of Jerusalem, and across the Kidron Valley, and over into uh, the, uh, the area away from the palace. This psalm is a beautiful psalm. We're, we've been looking and noticing the literature of the psalms, the lyrics, and the structure this is an acrostic psalm. What that means is that they take the 22 consonants of the Hebrew alphabet and each verse of this psalm, you notice there's 22 verses, each verse of this psalm, the first word of the first, uh, the first word of each line, the first letter in that word is the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Dalit, goes down the list all the way to Tal down the line, beautifully constructed. Um, I, I read that in the English commentary, which I remember. There's seven of these psalms that are like that. The one that we're most familiar with is Psalm 19, where the whole verse, the whole stanza is acrostic and begins with the first letter of the first word being of the letters of the alphabet in Psalm 119. And I remember uh, as I kind of went through that again. I thought, that's fascinating. I went back and looked at the other psalms that are acrostic psalms and uh, looked at it in the actual Hebrew text to see the beauty of that. That's not easy to do from just the standpoint of composition. If the Bible is not the inspired Word of God, which we believe it is, it is at least about as inspired as human language can be. And one of the things that's fascinating about this psalm is not just its literary composition, but it's emotive content. In this psalm, the psalmist is very mature. This is the psalm of a mature Christian. This is the psalm of someone, and I believe most of us in this room this morning was, would sort of fit this category, that has been with the Lord for a while. We have walked with the Lord. We have trusted in the Lord. We have doubted the Lord. We have served the Lord with all of our might and we have failed the Lord tragically from time to time. We've had a relationship with the Lord. In fact, the psalm even mentions here in verse 14, the friendship, and, it, and literally the word is the secret, 
the secret of the Lord. And it's, it's that intimacy. It's that experience that people have with one another with words shared and emotional moments and times of failure and times of reconciliation and times of frustration with one another that only to the two people themselves know. That which you would see between a mother and a child, that which you would see between a brother and a sister and a brother and a brother or a husband and a wife are two close friends that walk together. Those close friendships where there is uh, everything, there's love and there's immense frustration. <laughs> there's attraction and then there's a certain repelling and there's a mystery there. And there are things that transcend moments that no matter what happens, you know each other well enough to know that it's going to be okay or it's going to be all right. And no matter how irritated and how uncomfortable, even alienated you become, you know that's not the final word. You know it's going to be healed. It's going to be restored. It's going to be brought back together. And that's where David was at this place in his life. Oh, that we can get there. Oh, that our walk with the Lord will be that walk of friendship, that, that closeness where we know the Lord over a long period of time. And I think that's why David goes back and says, Lord, forgive me for the sins of my youth. Oh, come on, David, you know the gospel. Don't you know that God has removed those sins as far as the east is from the west? You said so yourself. Don't you know he's blotted out your iniquity? Don't you know he's remembered your sins no more? What are you talking about, David? What are you talking about those old, forgotten, forgiven sins? It's because when you think about a total relationship, every little thing in it, no matter when it occurred, that was wrong and that was bad and that was weak, is a deep regret. It's a remorse of the soul to, to think that how I treated someone back then or how I thought of someone back then. Why have, haven't I been this close all along. In this psalm, David will tell us about his enemies. It wasn't just that David had enemies. He had enemies all his life. He started out when he was just a young man. He, the lion and the bear were his enemies. They were the enemy of his sheep. And I'm telling you that the heart of the Lord, and David was a man after the Lord's own heart, an enemy of the sheep is an enemy of the shepherd. David had Goliath. He had much, much to David's deep, deep sorrow. He had King Saul as an enemy. And as the years went by, many foes would assail him from time to time. But the gravest and the most hurtful enemy of all was his own son, his own son, Absalom, who had all the charm of his father, King David, and more, and all the diplomacy, and all of the, her the heroic attraction that a great leader has. If you look carefully and study the lives of the bits and pieces that we get of the profiles of some of these men in the ancient text, Absalom was a man who was very, very qualified in all ways to be 
David's successor, to be the next king, to be the king that sat upon the throne of David, which the Lord had promised would be an eternal throne. Absalom was the man. But Absalom was the rebellious son. He was the incorrigible son. He was the son that rebelled against the father. And you know what happened to Absalom. Eventually, in the battle, Absalom, in his flight, caught his thick, attractive mane of hair in the thicket of the tree, and it pulled him off of his mount, and he hung there on a tree. Falling under a stipulation of the curse of the law that Moses had written, cursed is every one that hangs upon a tree. Absalom typified the cursed son, the son that did not receive the blessing, the son that was rejected by the father, the son that had to be put down, cut off by the father. The enemy of the Father. Remember, we've talked every week, we've been looking at these Psalms. I said, in the Psalms, look for three people. Look for King David. As you read the Psalm, think about his life, his biography, his pilgrimage. One of the great things the Bible says about King David in the book of Acts, it says, King David served the Lord in his generation. He couldn't do anything about Moses' generation, and he wasn't going to do anything about later kings in their generation. But in his generation, he served the Lord. So when you look at the life of David, the 40-year reign of King David over Israel, the united kingdom, which he united, you see there many, many, many pictures of Christ. And you see them in the Psalms. And one of them you see here is the enemy the enemy of the Lord. The enemy of the king falls under the worst dreaded curse. The enemy of the king cannot be allowed to live in the kingdom. He cannot be allowed to survive. There's only one place for the enemy of the king, and that's the gallows. That's the cross. And David had a son that suffered that destiny. And David had a greater son that suffered the same destiny. Absalom was cursed in his hanging upon a tree, but that was but a vague and a pale shadow of the great reality of Jesus Christ who bore the curse for all of us, the curse of the king, the execution and the demise of one who rebels and who sins against the king. No one knew better than King David the awfulness of sin, the hurt of rebellion. And no one understood better than David the justice of how sin must be dealt with by the king, by the sovereign. 
And God Almighty could not let your sin slide. God Almighty could not laugh off your iniquity and your transgressions. The sins of your life needed to be paid for. And that's what Jesus did. Hanging on the cross in his sinlessness, he nevertheless fell under the curse of Moses' law. Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree, and there he bore the penalty for your sin. David had another son, Solomon. I don't think Solomon had near the physical and social and leadership gifts of, of Absalom. In fact, I think he was a weaker person in a lot of ways. But this was the favored son. This was the chosen son. This was the son that was to receive the blessing. And David on his deathbed blessed King Solomon. Solomon is, means shalom, peace. Solomon was the prince of peace. And Solomon, like Absalom, typifies Christ, except Solomon was the subservient son, the obedient son. He was the son that received the blessing of the father. He was the son that was given the throne. And he was the son who in humility subjected himself to his father's leadership and his father's blessing and his father's direction. And David had worked out in his own life these things that he sees in his relationship with his two boys, because he had many sons, but these two exemplary sons, his relationship with the Lord, he saw it working out the way. He saw in his own heart his rebellion. He saw in his own heart the Lord at work, working in him. And he pleads for more of that. He wants more of that. He says, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. So that I wait for you all the day long. You know what? Waiting on the Lord is a, is a term that occurs a lot in the Psalms and it occurs in the book of Isaiah and other prophets. And what waiting on the Lord is, is uh, to make it kind of simple, it is faith plus hope. Faith is that belief and that trust in the Lord that we come to when the Lord draws us to himself and shows himself and we see our inadequacy and we see our sin and we come to him for rescue and we call upon him for salvation and he hears our prayers and he bestows upon us eternal life and all the blessings attendant to it, the peace and the joy and the love that's in our heart that's shed abroad by His Spirit, all these things that are just given to us by manifold mercy and grace, just poured out upon us. These are the things the Lord gives His people. And that's the faith. But the hope is that continual expectation that the Lord is going to deal with us in this manner. And David doesn't look to himself as someone who deserves this. He says over and over, it's according to your steadfast love. It's for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. 
David knows that his salvation, his eternal life. You say, where's eternal life mentioned in this passage, Ron? Well, it's that passage where it talk about, talks about God's people inheriting the land, inheriting the covenant, coming into all of the fruition of everything that God had planned. That's eternal life. The promise of the covenant was you'll live in the land forever. That's eternal life. The land of Canaan was just a little glimpse, one of those little shadows, one of those little types, one of those weak and beggarly elements that just give us just a slight glimpse of what God means in the eternal when He gives us something in the temporal. Something that God is going to bring to pass in the celestial when He gives us something in the terrestrial. David sought, found, held on to, clung to, believed in, wallowed in, waited for God's work in his life. This is a mature psalm. And I'll show you how it's really mature. The whole psalm is basically about David and his relationship to the Lord, crying out for forgiveness, crying out for instruction, crying out for guidance, needing God in his life, recognizing God's mercy and God's loving kindness, recognizing and understanding the blessings of the land and the covenant and all of these other things, and all of this deepening that comes with the walking with the Lord over all of this time. And this, this psalm is a mixture of prayer, then it goes into meditation, then it goes into more prayer and then into muse. If you follow the flow of the psalm through, you'll, you'll see. And by the way, you've got to study and read and enjoy this psalm for yourself. We don't have time to look at every verse of it today, of course, but, but you need to enjoy this psalm. You need to read it and reflect along with David on all the many things that he talks about. And the, the, the personal pronouns about the, you, the Lord, and, and me or I that David says are multiplied in this in this particular psalm over and over. It's a, it's a relationship between the man, the person, and his God. He starts off, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. But the very last verse, the very last verse, verse 22, redeem Israel, O God, out of all of his troubles. That's a call, a prayer for redemption. That's a call, that's a prayer, that's a longing for Christ, the Redeemer, to come and do his work. And it's not just a work in the life of David personally, but it is a corporate work. And David now looks beyond himself to the church, to the whole company of God, the congregation, the faithful, the gathered, the chosen, the people of God, and his prayer is for them. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. One day in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, under the law, made of a woman, to bring about that redemption. David walked with God and had such a good relationship with God that he wanted everybody to have it. That was a missionary prayer. That was an evangelistic prayer. 
Redeem Israel, O God. Save your people. Call from the four quarters of the earth a people for your name who will walk with you, who will love you, who will serve you, who will obey you all the days of their lives. 